You're listening to a Lutheran Conversation with your host, Reverend Jake Zabel. So hello and welcome to another episode of A Lutheran Conversation. I'm your host, Reverend Jake Zabel of the St. John's Evangelical Lutheran Church located in Dolby, Queensland, Australia, a member congregation of the Confessional Orthodox Evangelical Lutheran Communion, or COELC for short. Um, A Lutheran Lutheran Conversation is a podcast produced by the Order of Knight George, which is an Australian Lutheran media ministry. You can find any of the Order of Night George content by the just searching the Order of Night George on YouTube, SoundCloud, or iTunes, or go directly to our website, www.nightgeorge.info. So today's guest that we have for our conversation today is Pastor Edgar Mayer of the Living Grace Church located in Toowoomba, Queensland. So he's only probably about two hours drive from me. So, Edgar, would you like to introduce yourself? Um, okay, just my person. Like, you can probably tell from my accent, um, I was born in Germany and raised in Germany, came to Australia at the age of 20, did my um, training, Lutheran training, six years in Adelaide with the Lutheran Church of Australia, went back to Germany for two and a half years, um, did a doctorate, um, New Testament, and then came out again to Australia, to Woomba, to start my first position as a pastor of the Lutheran Church of Australia. And I had two congregations that I pastored, two traditional congregations, and went from there. And, well, if you want to know about myself, like, I'm married, I've got two girls, I've grown up, left home, empty nest now. Oh, well, we'll get on to the history of you and your church in a minute i just wanted to take a quick moment to preface this episode for all those people listening so i'm a more confessional conservative lutheran and people who know me and listen to my show normally run in those more conservative traditional lutheran circles and there are probably a bunch of australians who know edgar mayer is himself you've you're quite a well-known figure in australia and little bit sometimes controversial so i want to preface this episode for all those conservative lutherans that have probably seen the episode title and seen that i'm discussing lutheranism with edgar mayer and gone what what's jake doing i've prefaced this on previous episodes when i've had some more left-leaning liberal lutheran pastors on as guests where i say The point of a Lutheran conversation is to talk to all Lutherans. Uh, So it doesn't matter if they're more conservative or more liberal, more progressive, um, more megachurch-based, more um, pietist, um, whatever. The idea of a Lutheran conversation is to get Lutherans on and to have conversations, to find out what the differences are, where the differences are, and why there are differences. And just to basically create a bit of a information base of what different kind of Lutheranism there is out there. And for all those people, because I know 
I, I get this on both sides, whether you're more conservative or more liberal. I know there are a bunch of people that seem to not want to ever have conversations. I know that there are people on the left who don't want to talk to me and because of I'm more conservative and some people who get cranky at the liberal pastors for wanting to talk with me. And I know on the flip side, there are a bunch of conservatives that basically if I have a conversation with someone like Edgar, they're going to see that as, oh, you're having church fellowship with, with Edgar and, and that's a violation of, of this commandment and that, and you're going to go to hell or whatever. Pretty much that's, that's kind of the attitude I get from these people to which I say, we're not in church fellowship. Just because I'm having a conversation with Edgar doesn't mean that all of a sudden our church is entered into altar pulpit fellowship. We're just, it's a conversation. And I like to remind people that Jesus ate with the Pharisees and the tax collectors and prostitutes. You know, he, 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 he sat down with a bunch of controversial people. And St. Paul himself had public debates and conversations with the um, pagan philosophers in Athens. So if, if Jesus and Paul can do those, I think I can have a conversation with, with some, some different Lutheran pastors that we may disagree on certain theological points. So let's, let's have a conversation. And if people are going to get upset about their, me having conversations with like Lutherans I disagree with, I'd like to point out that I'm having a lot of conversations with people I disagree with. I have pastors on from even conservative synods that I don't agree agree with everything on. So it doesn't matter if we disagree. That's the point. The point of this show is that we disagree. Uh, oh, well, not disagree. Point of this show is that we're going to have conversations about where and why we disagree. So with all that said and done, let's get on with the actual conversation. And if people don't like it, well they don't have to listen. <laughs> but I would encourage people to listen because the point of the show is I want people to listen to these kind of conversations and find out the differences within Lutheranism. Edgar, do you have any further thoughts and comments on that before we move on with the conversation? Um, you have to make a case that you can actually engage and listen and have a conversation. Um, you know, and good on you. You know, we should be secure enough and humble enough that if something is pointed out to us we can actually change our minds but you know in my experience um you know still in the lutheran church of australia for years you know heading up lutheran renewal and a renewal movement that has never happened a conversation like it may have happened behind closed doors but even review panels did not talk to me they did not condemn me for anything either but like yeah i find conversation is good and you know, I'm, I'm not trying to convince anyone, but I'm keen to listen to you as well. You can always learn. Well, that's good. And basically, the second question is your brief history of like you and your church. So you gave us a little bit of a brief history there a moment ago when you're introducing yourself. You, you said you came to Australia and you had these two congregations with the Lutheran Church of Australia. How did you go from there to ministering with Living Grace now, which is not a member of the Lutheran Church of Australia. So how, how did you go from ministering those two congregations to where you are today? Yeah, so uh, that wasn't just one step. Like, um, you know, I probably got to tell a little bit the, the history. So when, when we came back from um, Germany and doing a PhD there, I came back to the LCA and was so happy that I was back. 
I mean, I loved study. I loved the six years we had in Adelaide. Um, it was my home. I think I experienced faith renewal, um, loved the theology, the love of the scriptures, all the things that I learned, um, lecturers that I really um, appreciated, honored. And so I came back to the promised land. And basically my, um, my intention was, you know, to be a good traditional Lutheran pastor. I didn't have any, nothing on my heart to change anything. I wanted to learn, learn the ropes, you know, you're doing, you know, you've got theological degrees, but you're really a pastor on P-plate. You don't know how it goes. Um, do your first funeral and your first wedding. And, you know, you, you try to do the service. Okay. And the two churches I ministered, one was um, maybe an average attendance of 130 at the time. And the other one was maybe 35 just a, a maybe 10 minute drive into the country. They were beautiful churches. They, they were at peace among themselves. They had all ages there and I was ministering and for a while. But probably a few years into the ministry, and not that not that long, I, I probably, my observation was that we didn't have any converts. We had no converts and we were slowly losing young families. You know? So trickling out, and I thought, you know, that's not good. You know, long term, that that doesn't seem to work. He, um, and I noticed that the same occurred in all the Lutheran churches in Toowoomba, and there were six of them at the time. We were all doing the same thing. Uh, you know, we did the uh, the traditional liturgical. Um, we had the organ playing and all of that, and uh, I cut this short. But I, I probably, in my discernment and I guess my own experience in listening to people, it's probably the traditional, um, the routine of the ritual that couldn't really be uh, changed, wasn't quite connecting with people. So basically, cut a long story short, those two churches planted another church that was going to be contemporary in nature. So not charismatic, charismatic wasn't on the scene. I didn't even know that that was on the scene. Um, but we, we, we tried to plant a contemporary church that had you know, a worship band, for instance. We used a lot of skits, creativity. And what, what worked for me personally as well was that um, on any given Sunday, when God gives you a message or a topic or something on your heart, then the whole service could be geared into that. So there was a lot of lot of intense work with uh, a, lo a lot of people in the church that were just so hungry and keen to, to shape that worship service to explore the things that God put on our heart on that, on that day. And that put, that's, that's the origins of Living Grace? That's the origins of Living Grace. And so it became um, Living Grace Church, uh, an independent member, or a separate member of the Lutheran Church of Australia in 2002. So that's six years into my ministry into, in, into Woomba. And then, and then we thought it was contemporary and then God had a few surprises. Um, for instance, I think 2002, you know, probably just the first year we were actually full-time uh, living grace. Against my wishes, uh, I guess I, I received the gift of tongues. In, in a prayer meeting with other ministers and the prayer meeting wasn't charismatic uh, so it came a, as a complete surprise to me the others didn't even notice but um, you know when that happens 
God throws you into the deep end because you've got to process that. Like, what does that mean? So surprising to me was it wasn't ecstatic experience. It wasn't an emotional experience at all. Like, and, you know, I still, I had it and I still didn't want it. But, you know, so that was one event. So you got to get your head around stuff that you didn't have to process before. And then a few months later. I was just, can I just ask you a question there? You said with tongues, just to define that for the listeners, the way people talk about gift, gift of tongues, I've heard people talk about like, oh, I was traveling around in Papua New Guinea and I got the ability to, to speak in their native language from God or the, the other gift of tongue where it comes out more of a, use the word like a, 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 a babble kind of, kind of not understandable by human ears and then i think generally in those kind of churches there there has to be an interpreter or something to understand it is it the the former or the latter that you were that you were experiencing uh it, it wasn't used in a mission context you know i didn't i didn't speak to i know i know that but i mean was it more like a translation into a into like a like you were you had the ability to speak like in a different language or was it more the un 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 not understandable um, well, I, speech. I, I I can't understand it. I recognize it's the same, like it's the same language. I, I can recognize phrases like I said those before, but I don't know what it means. I think it's it's just a prayer language. Um, God is using it according to how he wants to. I've had it probably a few times that, you know, sometimes when I pray for people with the laying on of hands, and I, I run out of English words and I don't know how to continue. I might just pray in tongues and just for a little while and, and just listen again. And then I may continue in English. And uh, a few times when I've done that, the person that I prayed for understood what I was saying. And it was exactly what they needed, you know, prayer that they needed for. Like, And I had no idea. So that can happen. Well, moving back to your history then. Yeah. You had the gift of tongues come on, and then where'd you go from there? Yeah, like, you know, kept it quiet a little. <laughs> you know, it's just like you're not immediately coming out with everything. It's all a bit new territory, and you start learning a bit. But a few months later, the 1st of January 2003, there was a guest speaker that was traveling um, Australia in the Lutheran Church of Australia, um, a guy that got invited to minister to us from the States. And he was originally from Ethiopia. His name was Gemetis Destabuba. And he came, you know, I was asked, I was approached whether we could have him, host him for one night because they didn't have a preaching spot for him on that day. And I said, yes. And we had about 300 plus Lutherans from the Darling Downs there from different churches. And that's where, when he started praying for people, laid hands on them, and we had maybe about 200 people, oh, maybe not quite as many, uh, slain in the Spirit or fall under the power of the Spirit. And we weren't prepared for that. That was a completely new experience. I was a bit freaked out by that. Um, I ended up catching our members. I thought, what's going on here? And so... That's another one where you're thrown into the deep end. You know, something experiences, uh, you know, something happens and how do you get your head around it? And none of our guys in the church knew 
about that, but everyone knew that God was in the house. Like um, certainly that particular night, even with other pastors being there, no one said that's the devil. So, and no one said that that was human fabrication. So it's something that happened that God did. And yeah, to get your head around that, uh, challenging. And so is this then the origins of Lutheran renewal, or when about did that movement start? Yeah, no. So, so that happened in 2003. And, and then it was really slow, you know, it was really, really, really slow going because this was all new to us. And, you know, even after that night, the Holy Spirit as such wasn't the main topic. We were, you know, traditional Lutherans. We came into renewal. A lot of them, I would even say, got born again. So they were traditional, you know, church Christians, you know, um, culture Christians. So I think we did the Alpha course for the for the church. Maybe sixty, I don't know, eighty people of the church did the Alpha course, and a lot of them, for the first time in their lives, they actually made a commitment to follow Jesus at the end of it. It was quite significant for them. So, and then we had to learn about, you know, we had a love for the scriptures. Um, we learned about things of, like discipleship and holiness, or, or that were foreign to us, <laughs> I have to say. Can I just get you to explain for the listeners what the Alpha Course is? Uh, the Alpha Course is basically uh, a basic introduction to the Christian faith. Um, it's used across the world. I don't know in how many languages translated. And yeah, there is um, there's probably three talks on the Holy Spirit as well. And it's probably the first talk on the gift of tongues that I've ever heard in my life. And like, yeah, with all the theological education, I knew nothing about it. Um, but that wasn't the main thing. Um, um, this, this giving your heart to Jesus, um, entering into a relationship with him, that was new. I, I would say that for a lot of people that was new. Yeah, God did something, and I mean, there was excitement, and but then we had to rediscover everything. So, would you call that somewhat um, the what's often I've heard the term uh, decision for Christ? Would would that be a term you guys would use? Um, I know in in the, in some Lutheran circles that's a loaded word. You know, then you immediately talk about decision theology. I don't know how you want to do it. I mean, I would say that everything you know, is initiated by God, is empowered by God. But at some stage, you actually respond to him. So however you want to phrase that, but like um, there comes, you know, he calls and, and you respond. And and people have heard the call and they responded. And, you know, a lot of it was immature, but um, we were on a journey. And so the Holy Spirit, that was in, in the mix of it. And, you know, that wasn't our constant focus. I didn't preach all the time on the Holy Spirit or anything. I couldn't because I didn't know all that much about it. So if you think about it, that was 2003. We started Lutheran Renewal in 2015. That's 12 years after that. So that's a long time of learning and processing. And Lutheran Renewal was actually started. Um, that was another... It was basically a response to all the opposition. You know, there, there was a trigger event where one bishop shut down our ministry, outreach ministry in another city. And I thought, you know, that can't happen. You know, like he has never talked to me. I'm not accused of anything. 
as far as I know, I'm a good conservative, if you want confessional Lutheran. I'm not against anything in the Book of Concord or the Bible. I, I'm actually trying to be faithful to all of it. Um, you can't shut down a minister's um, uh, ministry just because you, you just, of your own accord, do that. You haven't got the power, not even as a bishop. And Lutheran Renewal was started actually exactly wanting to do what you're doing is I wanted to start a dialogue I, because, you know, there was no platform given to anyone that had a Holy Spirit experience. And there were a few in the church like Peter Steike and Dirk Wilner and a few others. But pastors' conference, even though, you know, for all these years, they said, look, let, let me talk to my colleagues and submit myself to, to my colleagues and hear what they have to say in response. I may learn something and, you know, if I'm wrong, I can, I can retract. But, you know, that was never allowed. So no conversation. So that's, that's why we started Lutheran Renewal, to get the message out and, and into a dialogue. I was going to say, um, because there was in Australia, I, I don't know exactly when it was. I'm going to um, name drop uh, Pastor Peter Noble. Uh, he, he's written a paper on the history of the original uh, Luther Renewal movement um, in Australia, which I think was back in the 70s or whatever. And there's also, like, there's a church body over in Papua New Guinea called the Luther Renewal Church of Papua New Guinea. Um, did you did you guys just come up with this term, or does the name Luther Renewal have some connections to any kind of outside um, or preceding groups, or did you guys just come up with it? Um, yeah, that's a good question. No, we... we... I didn't have really any first-hand experience with other Lutheran renewal groups. There was no, it's just one of our members gave me maybe three magazines, Lutheran renewal magazines, and they were from the 80s. So it must have continued way longer. And, and I was completely surprised. I never heard about it, that there was Lutheran renewal. It, it, when I was, at, it all bypassed me, you know, I, I just came out from Germany, like <laughs> I had enough to do to learn the language and find my feet. So I didn't know about it, but I was intrigued. And because in the in those magazines they had guest speakers from the states coming, that there, there was there seemed to be far more possible in terms of dialogue being exposed to some others than than in my experience. And I thought, well. If, if that could happen in the past, why can't it happen again? And then that basically starts Lutheran Renewal here in Australia. And I think, I, as far as I understand, Lutheran Renewal is still, you guys are still doing Lutheran Renewal, to, at least to some degree? No. No. Like, no? Um, no. Um, no. So it's, it's fully stopped the actual kind of Lutheran Renewal? Had, I mean, it, really, it wasn't long. Uh, so basically, 2015, we started it. Then we had, uh, you know, a few years doing conferences, doing the magazines, collecting basically all the testimonies. Um, and, you know, and then we had probably one climactic um, church conference just outside of Adelaide, Mount Barker. And probably over the weekend had more than a thousand people come, which is which is just amazing. Like looking back, I'm amazed, like, you know, a little church in Toowoomba is organizing it in in South Australia, interstate. But we had people come, and again, it was just right in the heartland of Lutheranism in, in Australia, again, with the view of finally engaging, like actually actually connecting. And, you know, 
we, we got a talk and you know we had that many people show up we had a, probably a few a, a message for the church certainly the way i was preaching but afterwards it was very clear you know it was unanimous from all the bishops they didn't really want it there was no engagement no dialogue and um there was no permission to advertise or do anything so um i, th I think it was time for us to leave and i think we had permission from god to leave um and but when we left so we, we left with a peaceful dismissal from from the lca and you know so you know really appreciate that so it was mutual blessing with one another but then yeah i'm you know now i'm out of the lca i'm, I'm not going to to um minister into the lca against the wishes of the leadership i think that's unethical <laughs> I, th I think you still got there's still a number of supporters of that kind of um, more charismatic ministry Lutheranial style ministry that you guys are doing within the LCA um, I, I know a few uh, particular pastors I won't name names but I know a few particular pastors that I went to seminary with and they were supporters of you then and you know they're supporters of you they like whether whether they get involved with you or not they're still kind of continuing on like your legacy within the lca as much as as much as they're able to i don't know what kind of restrictions the lca has on them not being in the lca i'm not privy to much of that information but i do know that they they're big believers in that kind of more charismatic lutheran um movement so there are there are you know your legacies managed to got some continuance in the LCA. Um, I just wanted to talk to you about the peaceful dismissal, which um, would you be able to just remind me what year that was? Uh, 2017, so three years ago. Ah, so right, right in the middle of the 500 years anniversary of the Reformation. So, because I do remember, it's been a while, but I do remember watching on YouTube the, the actual rite of peaceful dismissal that you guys had with... Uh, the Queensland Bishop. And basically one thing I wanted to ask you is I don't I don't know if you know this or whether I'd have to talk to the LCA, but my understanding of a peaceful dismissal has been that that's not a breaking of fellowship, it's more of a separation of the institution, like the synodical institution. So like you guys are no longer members of the LCA as an organization, but they haven't actually said you guys are excommunicated or we're breaking fellowship with you. I remember the bishop actually at your at the peaceful dismissal, he used as an example um, the story of St. Paul and St. Barnabas when they part ways. And what is interesting about that story is that Paul and Barnabas, they have like a personal disagreement over whether Mark should be allowed to come on the missionary and they decide to go their different ways but they don't break like church fellowship it's not like that saint paul says to barnabas well you're no longer a christian because because of this issue i mean i forget which one of paul's letters but he even later makes comment i think it's in timothy uh he makes a comment about how great mark is and how mark has been such a big help to paul so even though they split their their ministry into 
different things. They never really broke church fellowship in, in that understanding. So with that understood, does that mean that Living Grace and the LCA, you guys still essentially have what's called ultra-pulpit fellowship, even though you guys aren't members of the LCA anymore? Uh, no, ultra-pulpit fellowship, I think that's that's another level of church partnership yeah. again. But, you know, we're yeah. cer- we've certainly been... Um, released and blessed to be our own separate organization without any hint saying that you know we're espousing heresy or anything and like you know while i was you know while we were in the lca that was never said like and it it got you know (laughs) there were reviews and probably more informal reviews and review panels and lecturers and bishops you know looking at everything that i've written whatever but they, they never came up and said you know, this is not Lutheran or not biblical. So, you know, it it was doctrinally okay, but still not comfortable or embraced. So there's been no condemnation or rejection of you guys, but you guys don't have any kind of ultra-popper fellowship, so you couldn't go and preach in an LCA church. Um, would you welcome LCA pastors to come preach in your church on the on, like, the flip side? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Would 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 there actually be the possibility of I don't know how the LCA would handle it. Would there be the possibility if you wanted to to go and guest preach at a church in the LCA? Would that be available, or would would the LCA not allow that? I have no idea. I have no idea. Like you know, in all sorts of ministers from all sorts of organisations preach in in um, Lutheran churches, like. You know, even a pastor's conference, you may get people from all sorts of walks of life. Um, but like, yeah, I, that's not in my that's not in my head. Like, uh, I haven't really thought about that. I was just basically trying to figure out where, trying to figure out what the LCA's kind of actual policy is when it comes to a peaceful dismissal. Because, like I said, you guys, the not it wasn't like you were defrocked. It wasn't like your congregation was excommunicated. So it's not like there has there has been some pastors in the LCA that have had these situations happen, but that wasn't the situation with you guys. The initiative came from us, so we we asked to leave and decided we wanted to leave, and the church was unanimous. So, like you know, that made it easy as well. It just was the right time with everything that happened, um, and then it released everyone. So, you know, the, the LCA is free to you know, choose which way they want to go. And so if they don't want to have the charismatic uh, stream in the LCA, that that's okay. Like they got a right to dis- decide. And, you know, like I'm talking about here now, but um, I, and I had a, had a peaceful dismissal. But, you know, I've ministered for more than 20 years in the LCA. My formative years in the seminary were LCA. I still love the church. Like it's still in a way my home. Like you can't deny your own history, and so I'm. I just really wish the best. I really want the LCA to thrive and do well. So there's no hostility in me. Looking back. Alrighty. Well, we'll move on then with with the history section kind of well covered. The third question I have for guests is always: What's a controversial position that you hold? Um, we can either talk about 
kind of the charismatic stuff or if you've got something else I, I would like to talk with you a bit more about the charismatic um, Lutheranism at some point if that's what you want to talk about here we can do that or if there's something else you would like to talk about we can talk about that first um, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm open anything you like to talk about um, probably looking back I think the, the biggest issue that I would identify um, caused the biggest conflict was that I, I'm saying that you cannot be a Christian without an experience of God. So the, the whole notion of Christian experience, and and I firmly stand on the Bible and the confessions for that. And I, I probably my Reformation message, you know, like you can focus on tongues or you know miracles or whatever. But ultimately, what it really boils down to, I thought, you know, initially I thought, oh, those were the the stick, you know, the, the points where we are disagree. But no, the disagreement is far more basic. Um, I've probably encountered in the LCA uh, a great hostility towards Christian experience, talking anything experience. Like I remember, I, I was able to put it on the um, on the it made it a topic in at pastors conference. Queensland Pastors Conference, and at the end of the talk, you know, people in the planning committee they were nervous about actually putting it uh, as a topic. At the end of the the conversations we had at the Pastors Conference, one of the older pastors got up and basically thanked the Queensland Bishop for allowing us to talk about it. So you know, he he waited all of his life for it. An older guy, and you know, that was hard to talk about. And then I remember um, in our own church, we did a, a course on discipleship called Experiencing God. The course itself is not charismatic, um, but, you know, the, the, an older ch uh, LCA church member got up and said, Pastor, like, you know, when I first had the manual in my hand, like, I felt like taking it and throwing it down the aisle. Don't you know that for us Lutherans, the, the words obedience and experience are not okay. Like, wow, you know, so obedience is another word, you know, discipleship, holiness, but experience. And I, I would say, I, I would say um, a, a lot of Christians no longer know what it means to be born again. Oh, well, with that, so I think what what the term? What did you say? You said without an experience, you're not a Christian. Is that is that the exact word? I just want yeah, to yeah. make sure like, that I'm not misrepresenting like, what you said. I, I would say you know to make it radical, um, to say you cannot be a Christian without having an experience of God. So I was just to start off with that. The first part for me, listening to that would actually be that actually sounds rather discomforting. Um, so the, what, what I mean is like when I talk about faith, there's the what Francis Pieper talks about in his Lutheran dogmatics, or I think other Lutherans talk about this. He's just the one that I think most of. Uh, he talks about the difference between directive faith and reflexive faith. And so reflexive faith is that more what we would call like a mature Christian faith, this this kind of you start quote living the Christian life that 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 the you're really kind of you know gun ho for Jesus and like you actually take 
I like to use the words taking your faith seriously. Like that, that used to be a term I used to tell people because I, again, being a Lutheran, I tend to would avoid terms like decision for Christ or experience or any of these. But I know like when I was growing up, we were pretty much Sunday Christians. We would go to church on Sunday. We didn't say grace at home. Uh, like we didn't we didn't have table grace we didn't have devotion we just kind of went to church on sunday and that was it but then when i went through confirmation what actually was less confirmation itself and more that i had decided that i was going to start reading the bible myself and it was kind of i again i don't like necessarily using these terms but feeling moved by the spirit that like i wouldn't say i wasn't a christian before but I'd now say that I'm actually taking my faith seriously. And that's where I would say the difference between a directive faith to reflexive faith, whereas a reflexive faith is you actually, you're serious about it. You can think about it. You can confess it. Um, you know, this is part of this then led me into wanting to be, um, go into the office of the ministry. Um, I can actually recall one night uh, I was in high school and, We'd gone out driving looking at Christmas lights and I was just thinking about all this stuff just running around in my head. And I just prayed to God. I just said that, here I am, Lord, send me, you know, you know, I want to do something. I, I didn't really know what. Eventually I decided to enter the office of the ministry, but I'm just like, God has done so much for me. One, I want to do something for him in gratitude. And two, I want other people to know this good news that I've, that I've, that I've been starving for most of my life having been a Sunday Christian. But like that's what I would say is the difference between that reflexive faith, I would say that there is still this directive faith that um, like people refers to it as like it's an unconscious faith. It's the faith that infants have. It's the faith the mentally disabled have. It's the faith, he says, like even when you're not thinking about it, even if you're not serious about Jesus, if you're not having that experience, you're still... A Christian and you're still believing and so I don't know if like you said you're trying to be radical I don't know if it was more of an exaggeration from you or whether that's a set doctrine but saying that people that don't have that experience aren't Christian to me would be like well then you kind of dismiss everybody who's infants like where is the um, comfort message there um yeah I'm actually well I'm not trying to be radical I'm actually I'm, I'm saying it I know to some ears it will sound radical, but I think it's absolutely mainline core um, evangelical Lutheran confessional doctrine. And I, I'm probably, I'm feeling like I want a lot of church Christians, I, I want them, I want to lead them back into the foundation of what it actually means to be a Christian. And I, I, I hear what you're saying. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm agreeing, like, even before I, had any sort of conscious experiences of God, um, I knew I was a Christian. Like I was baptized, grew up a Christian, and like um, a whole lot of things I didn't know, but God was holding me and he was there and, and he, he was keeping me in the faith. Like, you know, sometimes you're just hanging in there, getting confused by what a lot of other people are saying. But um, I, I'm probably, and you know, maybe, maybe, um, you know, Wesley, he just said, you know, his heart was strangely warmed. So that wasn't a huge charismatic experience. 
but it was some sort of experience. Oh yeah, I mean we got we can't dismiss the spirit's work. I mean everyone. I mean, that's the Book of Concord. Um, we talk about Lutheran Confessions, Article 5 of the Augsburg Confession makes a point that it's it's the Holy Spirit that moves us and, and gives us faith where and when he wills. And, and as well, Luther says in the small catechism, it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that I can actually believe in God. I can't believe in him or do anything without the Spirit's work. But yeah, I mean, the point I was making there is I think, as like with Scripture, talks about the dis- distinction between the immature Christian and the mature Christian, and just the way you were, the way you were talking, the more experiential. I think I would put that in the realms of more this mature Christian. And so, like I said, I don't know if you're over exaggerating, but when you said the like, no one without an experience can't be a Christian. I'm like, well, what about the immature Christian? Very often, the immature actually experience more. And the, the experience lessens a bit with maturity. Like sometimes, any, anyway, I'm not going there. What I, uh, I want to define a bit more clearly what I mean. And what I mean is from when you go to our confessions and a little bit into um, Luther and Lutheran history, there, there's the distinction between faith and intellectual assent. And they're not the same. And like, um, if you go to the Oxford Confession, you know, Article 20, I'll just read maybe a few lines, if you permit me. So it is, although this doctrine, and he means justification by faith, is despised by the inexperienced, nevertheless, God-fearing and anxious consciences find by experience that it brings the greatest consolation because consciences cannot be pacified for any works, but only by faith. And then one more sentence, this whole doctrine, justification by faith, is to be referred to that conflict of the terrified conscience, neither can it be understood apart from that conflict. Do you understand what I'm saying? So basically, if, if you were, in order to have faith and come into this relationship with God, there's got to be something happening by the Holy Spirit that first convicts you of your sin. So you actually have an experiential knowledge, you really know that the way you are is, is lost. And then when the gospel is preached and you you know, you know hear about Jesus Christ and you actually put your faith in him, suddenly as you put your faith in him, the terror disappears and the peace of God comes upon you. But the Bible says is beyond all human understanding. It surpasses human knowledge. So... And the, our confessions say you cannot understand the Christian faith apart from that experience. If you haven't experienced something like that, you know, you may have intellectual assent. You think our oh, faith is not difficult at all. I just believe it's all true. Um, but no, that, that's not faith and that's not being a Christian. I, was just, I guess more what I was wondering is where, what you would define as an experience. So like, I, correct you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the way I understood when you first spoke was that you were talking more about these uh, charismatic experiences and then you're saying, oh, unless you're born again and have these experiences, you can't be a Christian. Yeah, yeah no, that's not I'm what I'm just I mean. like, well, what about... Uh, thank yeah, you, cool. Blake. That's not at all what I mean. So I, when I talk here about uh, experience of faith, I'm not talking about tongues or miracles or any of that. I'm actually talking about you having this trust in Jesus Christ is forgiven your sin and, and you know that. And uh, yeah, clinging to Jesus. And I mean, the Bible does talk about the kingdom of God is you no know, righteousness, peace and joy. 
there, there is a peace. We have peace with God. And, and that, that's an experience. Um, you know, every now and then we can get anxious again, but, you know, in prayer, really, that's a promise. We can have a peace that surpasses all human understanding. After, after every sermon we preached, you know, in, in the Lutheran traditional congregation, we, we, we blessed the church with that. So, and, you know, for instance, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's talking to the Lutheran church in Germany. So he's talking to a million Christians and he talks about cheap grace. And what the way he defines it is, you know, there's a lesser human idea of grace and faith. It's grace as a doctrine, a principle, a system. It means forgiveness of sins proclaimed as a general truth. An intellectual assent to that idea is held to be sufficient to secure the remission of sins. So basically, and how many Christians are there that are like that? They think, I don't pray, I don't read the Bible, but I turn up on Sunday, I go through the liturgy, I confess my sins, I hear the words of absolution, it all happens. Intellectually, I assent to it, it's all true, it's all right. You go through the motions, you get out, that's not a Christian. Yeah, the, 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 the nominal Christians, in name only. Yeah, that, that's, that's even intellectual assent. And I've probably met so many uh, when I first started ministry, like they were not practicing. But, you know, why are you a Christian? They said, oh, because I believe that Jesus died for the forgiveness of my sins. And they learned that at school or confirmation class. They learned that one sentence and they thought just an intellectual assent to that one sentence is saving them or making them a Christian. And the answer to that is no. I think that's, um, if you've ever heard the term uh, fideism or like faith in faith, these ones that you ask somebody, oh, why are you, why are you a Christian? They are oh, because I believe this. And what they probably really mean is I know this. Whereas like Luther, if you were to say to Martin Luther, why, you know, how do you know you're saved? He'll say, I was baptized. Jesus died on the cross for me and, and stuff like that. He doesn't, he doesn't look at his, his own confession. He looks at what God does for him. And he, he's actually confessing what God does for him rather than saying, oh, well, I know I'm a Christian because I know these lists of facts. And yeah, I know the point you're saying is right, that you've got uh, James talks about the fact that just knowing God doesn't mean anything. He says even the demons know about God, and yet they're not going to be saved. They, they know that doesn't save them. And you've got Jesus in the Gospels who says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will be saved. There are people who think they're Christians but they don't actually truly believe. And that's where I think we'd go back to, yeah, this idea of the reflexive faith and directive faith. I think, yeah, the more the experience faith, the faith that clings to Jesus, that is the directive faith. It's the faith that, you know, people call it like an, it's an unconscious thing. It's just, it's not you're actually mentally thinking about it. It's just something in you. You feel it, you know it. You, you don't, This is why um, I wrote a book about, um, the topic of suicide, and I address the questions of, you know, pe- people's objection is often, oh, well, a person who commits suicide can't be saved because they don't repent. And I say, well, you're limiting repentance to just the verbal confession or even a mental confession. Whereas even when you look at the Book of Concord, it says that repentance isn't like a verbal or mental thing. It's It's more like this just contrition in your heart it's that that you know you're a sinner that you feel you're a sinner and it's it's more of a repentance and faith is more of a state of being rather than an actual thought in your head or a confession from your mouth it's 
You you are a believer. You are repentant. You don't you don't repent and believe. You 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 are those things. Um, and I think yeah. So I think we can find some agreement there. Um, I guess if we may we may disagree on like more some of the more um, charismatic um, experiential stuff there. But I think we can both agree on this 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 distinction between actual faith and then just intellectualism yeah so which is I'm, I'm glad i'm glad we we're able to discuss this because yeah like i said the way the way it sounded when you first said it um was that you had to have this kind of mountaintop um slain in the spirit experience before you could actually be a christian so thank i mean thanks for explaining that more clearer um we can now find some more agreement rather than because yeah i mean if if you i know there are kind of those some churches more in the american evangelicals that do have the things like oh you can only be a christian if you have this certain experience this is why they don't baptize infants they're like oh you can only be baptized once you're an adult you have to have this experience first and i go that's not comforting because especially the the experience that they limit it to i go well not everybody has that kind of experience and now you've just said that anybody that's outside of that experience is going to hell and that's very uncomforting like especially like babies like where's the comfort for a parent who who their child dies as an infant if oh my child didn't get to live to 15 and and make a decision for christ and be baptized then and that's when they have this age of accountability. A lot of those churches have to have to kind of give them some comfort. Whereas Lutherans say, well, faith can be held by infants. John the Baptist had, had faith in the womb. You know, you don't, you don't, you don't need to have some kind of mountaintop experience to be saved. As long as you've got the spirit in you, that's, you know, working in your heart, giving your faith, giving your belief. Yeah. We baptize, we baptize infants too. And I probably, you know, Jake, if I can maybe one more clarification, because you talk about mountain top experience and, you know, like, um, and I think you mean tongues or miracles or. I, um, I just mean like, yes, yeah, some kind of big. Yeah. Like to me, they're not the mountain top experiences, you know, they're exercising of spiritual gifts for ministry. You know, they may display power. But usually when, when I do it, like, you know, if I pray for someone and, you know, they fall to the floor, ha- happens, I never feel anything. To me, it's not a mountaintop experience, you know. I'm, I'm just like an observer. I'm not, I'm not doing it. Like, for me, the mountaintop experience is actually intimacy with God. Like, I, I want to experience his love. Uh, I, I want to be filled with joy and peace. You know, those, are th- I think, for me, are the mountaintop experiences. The other stuff is work. <laughs> you know, it, it can be tremendous and you can be bad. Like if you don't watch it, you, you can minister in, in power gifts, whatever, and your relationship with Jesus is actually not that close. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, you, for instance, like maybe you, you, can, you can preach an amazing sermon that the Holy Spirit is actually on you preaching and it powerfully affects the church. But it doesn't mean that your heart is actually completely surrendered to God and, and you are you are in sync with him, you know? 
like um, you, you actually experience his closeness. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, somewhat, yeah. I, I... <laughs> but you, you know, what I'm saying is, and this is the typical one, this is how, you know, charismatics can easily so go wrong. Just because, um, you know, just because you can pray in tongues doesn't mean that everything is okay in your relationship with God. You know, people sleep with their secretaries and do all sorts of stuff and they still pray in tongues. That's just a spiritual gift that is operating and God is not immediately withdrawing it when you fall in sin. So I think that's where you've got to be careful. You can operate in some of the gifts and God may still provide a healing or something, but that the heart is actually surrendered to him and he's, you're actually having communion with God and you're filled with his presence, his peace, his joy. That's different. So just the then going to the um, topic of the more charismatic um, speaking in tongues and those kind of things. So as you've said, you you see yourself as a confessional Lutheran. Uh, you hold to the Book of Concord. Um, the, the, I mean, the Book of Concord doesn't speak much about this, but um, Luther had a lot of at least personal issues with people that he called um, enthusiasts. And he does in the small cold articles has a bit of a rant um, at enthusiasts. So I would take it seeing yourself as a confessional Lutheran. Yes. I would, you would tend to say that you guys aren't enthusiasts then, because if you're confessional Lutheran, you'd say that, well, enthusiasm enthusiasm is wrong luther condemns enthusiasm we as lutherans also condemn condemn enthusiasm so basically i mean there's two choices either you say luther and them were incorrect on enthusiasm or you draw a distinction between yourselves and the enthusiasts of luther's day uh which which line would you more go down would you would you see a distinction between yourself and the enthusiasts or would you think that luther made a mistake with the enthusiasts? Um, I think that would need to be a little bit defined. Like probably the way I understand it, um, we are on a good confessional, you know, Luther's side. It's it's not wrong to be enthusiastic and joyful in the faith and, you know, like being really excited about God. That's that's probably, you know, so that that's a bit of an unfortunate but you know, if, if if you mean by enthusiasts, so if you mean by, by enthusiasts that you get carried away by your enthusiasm or a spiritual experience that you discard the scriptures and and feel confident enough to go against the scriptures, then that's absolutely not okay. We would reject that strongly. I think another thing is also um, one of the big things with the enthusiasts, and this is probably more what Luther addresses in the small court articles. Uh, is that the enthusiasts saw this um, immediate work of the Holy Spirit outside of the Word and sacraments. And Luther didn't agree with that. Luther, um, as I said, we mentioned earlier, the Article 5 of the Augsburg Confession says that God instituted the means of Word and sacraments so that the Spirit, through these means, works faith where and when He wills. And so Luther saw enthusiasts who were saying, oh, no, but the Spirit can come to us and work. We don't need word. We don't need sacrament. We can just have the Spirit come to us um, 
directly, and that was what Luther kind of more rejected. In, in the, That's more of the issues addressing in the small cold articles particularly. Yeah, okay. Like, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't understand how that's possible. How can you have faith in Jesus Christ without ever having heard about him? So, yeah, uh, I'm absolutely with that. Otherwise, it's just more mystical experience, but it can come from anywhere, and it's not leading to anything. So, yeah, I think, like, as I'm saying, that you, you guys would see when you talk about more the charismatic Lutherans, you would draw the distinction between um, you guys and, like, I think this is... I've heard people explain the difference between, like, charismatic and, and Pentecostal, and where they normally draw that distinction is that the Pentecostals are more that... Um, we don't need the sacraments. We can just have the spirit come upon us. Um, whereas the charismatic, they're less that and more just the outpouring of the spirit. So, yeah, whereas the, the, the Pentecostals are more that enthusiast where it's more the inpouring of the spirit without word and sacrament. Whereas um, charismatics tend to focus a bit more on the spiritual gifts, tongues, um probably revelation and stuff like that more so um so i think if i'm correct you guys would find yourselves probably more in the charismatic basket so you still have word sacrament all that good solid lutheran stuff what draws you guys different to other lutherans is that you guys well you guys are continuationists um in the old um cessationist continuationist um debate yeah, we certainly, you know, like to my knowledge, we're, we're not minimizing anything uh, in the confessions or the scriptures, you know, and and the word is pretty, you know, it's, it's totally central in our ministry um, because not only do we need to hear about Jesus Christ and, and you know, hear about God, we, we are meant to be instructed in how to live. And, and, you know, so you've got to preach the word about that as well. You can't just have, Otherwise, it's just emotional. It doesn't give any direction. But I'm not sure. And so you guys like, still have baptism, communion, all that stuff? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you said you baptize infants. You guys have weekly communion? Not weekly, fortnightly. But, but then lots of people got to uh, have holy communion at home as well or in small groups. So, you know, it has high value. The sacraments have high value for us. But, you know, like probably your summary of charismatic and Pentecostals, they probably wouldn't agree with that. You know, a third of Christendom is charismatic. And like lots of Pentecostals, you know, they are very strict on the word. They, they know about the aberrations and how dangerous it can be because people have an experience and then they become all sorts of weird. Like, yeah, you can have weird if you like, but you've got a minister and you've got a pastor community and, uh, at some stage, you, you've got to stand up and shut some things mm. down. So, well, I mean, yeah, like it... You know, and some of the manifestations... I, I guess yeah. my... my yeah. yeah, it's more of a simplification of, like I said, that was, like I said, I think I've had people try to explain the differences between Pentecostals charismatic in that way. Um, I think generally what like I'm saying is, like, Luther, what he condemns enthusiasts is more the... Um, the like I said, the more experiential, mystic, emotionalist, um, kind of the people that put their faith in the emotion and the experience themselves rather than 
Um, like I said, we are talking before about the idea of the, the mountaintop experience being like slain in the spirit or speaking in tongues and people who go, oh, well, I'm, I know I'm saved because I spoke in tongues rather than I know I'm saved because Jesus died on the cross for me. I also just happened to speak in tongues. You know, there's, that would be the distinction there. Um, I think one thing I would... I would just... One other thing is the more... I mean, the early church called them Gnostics. I mean, we have kind of people like that today. These ones that have special new revelation of the Spirit. So like the new prophetic age, a new apostolic age. Um, where would you guys... Would you guys agree with that or would you not? I, I like, um, you know, one of our guest preachers um, that's ministered to us a few times, uh, Roland Baker, and I, I like, like, I love it. The first thing he says when he comes, I got nothing new to say. And in a really good way, I think that's it. We got nothing new to say except the word of God in the Bible. And we actually believe it. <laughs> and we believe that how God acted in the Bible, he can act again. And he does. So so basically, if I was to try and categorize you guys, um, so for, especially for all my listeners that are listening and have been kind of wondering what it is you guys are, you guys aren't Gnostics. You guys aren't enthusiasts. You're not focusing on this emotional, mystic experience. You're not focusing on new revelation or that you're somehow Edgar Mayer is this new prophet that can tell us what's going to happen in 2021 or whatever. You guys are more just kind of continuists in the fact that you guys think that the um, the gifts of tongues, the gift of um, all that have continued on into the modern day, the pastoral office, probably uh, in lay people can can use the gifts as well, I think, I would, if I, because, yeah, um, I myself, I myself would be more of a cessationist um, in the fact that I believe that those kind of gifts were part of the apostolic age and the prophetic age to accompany the the prophets and the apostles as signs that the word they were speaking was the inspired and errant word of God. Um, I do like to point out to people, though, sometimes that I think there's there are some people that take a really hard cessationist view and say that basically all these things can never happen again. I probably take a softer cessationist where I go, I'm not discounting that God can't work miracles. God can God can do what he wants when he wants. I just would put it on a like you guys in the more continuous um, model would have it as more of a, it's a pretty present thing. It, you know, you, you talk about you, you just start praying in the tongues. Whereas me as a more soft sensation, I would be like, Hey, if God wants to one day I'm praying for somebody, God just magically heals them. Um, or, you know, miraculously heals them. Not to use the word magic, um, you know, miraculously heals them. Sure. God can do that, and I won't discount that. Um, you know, missionaries, I, I, you know, maybe one day I'm walking through Papua New Guinea and I come across a tribe of people, I can't speak their language, they can't speak English, God gives me the ability to all of a sudden on the spot speak their language. Yeah, I, I won't discount those, but I would leave. I would put those more as rare, few and far circumstances rather than a a, a more experiential everyday thing can, 
can I? Yeah. So can I read you probably two, three Bible verses that's become for, for me personally, but I think also for our church, key Bible verses that have accompanied us over the years. You know, they, I'll read it to you. And this is how the Apostle Paul, Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians. And he says, First uh, Corinthians 2, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Jesus is the message. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So that verse, I think it's one that God gave me when, when the people were slain at Living Grace for the first time in 2003 when this guest preacher was there. I, I went home and said, God, this has got to be in the scripture. You can do anything you like, but you've got to show me. Where is that in the Bible? And this is, this is where he led me to. And I was surprised because we Lutherans love that those verses because of how it begins. But then I thought, okay, oh, there's a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And while, you know, they fall down, they didn't do it voluntarily. It didn't hurt them. It wasn't violent, whatever, but maybe there was a bit of power at play. And then I discovered that in Romans 15, he has another two verses where he says exactly the same thing. He talks to them. He says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I've said and done, by the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Lycurum, I fully proclaim the gospel of Christ. So, you know, first I only read that and said, okay, people can fall down. Uh, I, I don't object, but it didn't happen again for years, like, and we didn't want it. But um, in 2012, those Bible verses came back to me because we wanted to do mission work and I didn't quite know what to do with mission work. Our evangelist, you know, he felt sick, whatever, and I didn't know what to do. And then I uh, I went back to the, those verses and for the first time I actually understood they were Paul's summary of the way he did mission work in Corinth. And then in Romans he wrote it and he, you know, that's the latest letter we have from him in the Bible. He's looking back over the years of ministry and saying, this is how I've always done it. I preached a simple message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then God backs it up with signs, wonders, and miracles, demonstrations of the Spirit's power so that you don't believe just because I preach well, but because, you know, so, something was happening that can only be attributed to the power of God. And, and then we got challenged to do ministry that way. And we did tent ministry. And we did it exactly like that. You know, we were trying it out and I was pretty nervous about it. But so you preach a simple message and then you invite people to come forward and, and you pray for them. And you, you say, God, now you demonstrate. You, you confirm the preaching. You confirm the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And man, he does. That, that's the joyous wonder of it. Like people get healed demons manifest and get driven out you know stuff happens um you're not in control of it um but but god is still doing it the bible way so, yeah. and i think i think that's there would where we, i think that's where we draw the main distinction like in kind of our our positions on this so like 
With with the debates about cessationism versus continuationism, like we we can both go and find numerous Bible verses and stuff. I think for me, it's less about necessarily the Bible verse and what is the purpose behind the signs. And from understanding you, is you're saying that like you've preached your gospel now, and then God has given you signs as confirmation of those in the present. Um, and whereas I, as a cessationist, would say that while that was the purpose of the signs and the miracles, I believe that was to end with the apostolic age, that God gave the prophets and the apostles these special abilities to do these signs and miracles to prove that they were speaking the direct word of God, that they were speaking this inspired word of God. And like I said, again, we could quote numerous Bible verses. For me, the main points are is that there is a difference between the prophetic office and the priesthood and the apostolic office and the office of the ministry. To In the Old Testament, the priests in the temple weren't going around doing these same kind of miracles that people like Elijah and Jeremiah and Isaiah and all those were doing. The prophets got these special miracles to show that they were speaking this direct word from God. And then same thing with the prophets and the apostles. When Jesus sent out the 12 and when he sent out the 72, he sent them out with the ability to cast out demons, to heal, to do all these miraculous things. Yet then when Paul appoints Titus and Timothy to go out as ministers, or in the book of Acts when he appoints pastors to minister to churches, there's never this accompanying then sign. Like if you read through Timothy there's the list of qualifications that a pastor should have to be a good pastor. But this healings and casting out of demons and stuff wasn't wasn't something that was passed on to the pastoral office. It was something specific to um, the apostolic office. And so you were talking before about this idea of the what we're saying is nothing new. And that's where I would make this distinction between um, cessationism and continuationism that, for me, the signs and the wonders were because the apostles were preaching something new. They were preaching something direct from God that hasn't, hadn't been understood before, and they needed those signs from God to, ju- to, to confirm and back up that when Paul says that what I'm preaching is true, People are like, we'll prove it. And he has to be like, here, I'll heal you or I'll get bitten by a snake and not die to prove that he is a direct apostle of God. Whereas us in the more later Christians are preaching God's the word already revealed. But, but, but Dave, what, what has changed? What has changed? So what has changed? You talk to an ordinary guy in Dolby that from all sorts of different background. And like, um, so how how he how is he going to believe? Is he just going to believe because you say so, or do you do you need to convince him that the miracles that the apostles performed were real? I mean, how is it going to work? I would probably say that that's the work of the Spirit to work through word and sacrament to move in him. That I'm not preaching a new revelation. I'm preaching the same revelation that Paul preached, just. You know, I'm reading it to him from the word or I'm preaching it 
from my memory rather than getting some new direct revelation. Basically, like, I think the distinction I would make is that my word is a mediated word, that it's coming, what I'm preaching is what I've received. Um, like as Paul, Paul says to Timothy, take what I've given to you, pass it on to other men and they can pass it on to other men. I'm, I've got a received word that I'm passing on, whereas Paul, Paul had a new word. And that's where I would draw the distinction that I would say the signs and miracles go with the new word rather than with the received word. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I'm not a cessationist. <laughs> so, it, and, you know, like if you want to know, understand us, 1 Corinthians 2 and Romans 15, they're key verses for me. Uh, I, I do believe I do believe that mission work like that still continues. And it does all over the world. You know, even a guy like Reinhard Bonnke and, you know, he's passed away now. But like, you know, he can have more than a million people just in one service like uh, I am amazing and a lot of them are Muslims and a lot of but but everyone knows you know healings happen there so you know there's um, demonstration of God's power and mercy and uh, probably in, in our experience you know we we had this miracle of gold sparkles you know appearing on people's skin and we didn't pray for you know we didn't ask for that one either but like I've probably noticed like in Jesus' ministry, the miracles do not guarantee Christians. Scores and scores of people, they can actually have a genuine experience of something that they recognize as miraculous, but it doesn't mean that they change their lives or begin to trust Jesus, respond to him. It's a bit like exactly in the in, in the Bible, like uh, Jesus performs all those miracles. People still walk away from him. Like people still crucify him. And, you know, when Peter preaches the first sermon, like he tells the crowd, the thousands in front of them, you know, Jesus Christ, whom you well know, whom God accredited to you by signs, wonders and miracles. Like you, you still with the help of evil men, you crucified him. So, yeah, it, it doesn't guarantee, you know, necessarily full church or that people don't walk away. But some people do respond to it. It does point. It does confirm the message. On the flip side, I was just going to say on the flip side of that, um, cause you, your belief is that these miracles then accompany like your preaching to, to confirm for people that this preaching is from God. Yeah. Like I said, we're, just to clarify things further to me, that sounds a bit more like what they call experientialism, or I think I'm pronouncing that right. This idea of, it's more of a faith in the experience and in the miracles rather than the word of God. Um, would you... You know, would you be happy to confess that there are plenty of people that come to the faith without having to see these this these confirmations that like you can just preach the word, there's no miracle that follows it, and people can still be brought to the faith. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I think, you know, Billy Graham had an amazing uh, ministry and it wasn't marked by, you know, overt miracles as such. But people certainly got touched in terms of, you know, there there was the Holy Spirit brought repentance and they came and they, they, you know, they would say they had an experience, like they were born again, things changed, they had an encounter with God, but they, they didn't necessarily have, you know, gold sparkles or they were not slain in the spirit or, but, you know, you, you don't control that. You don't control the miracles. God does whatever he, he wants to do. On the day of Pentecost, they didn't see the tongues coming and they didn't see coming that they would look like drunk people. Like, so, 
that may not have been their choice but you that's up to god it's just not your you're not in control i guess what i'm trying to um see here is that you guys would try to make the point that you guys aren't putting your faith in the miracles that you're actually putting your faith in the word oh. and the sacraments oh. and the spirit working yeah. through those I, I mean yeah i mean jake what does it mean like you can be slain in the spirit so you fall to the floor so what what does that mean you, you can't actually have faith in that like what you know, I, t- I tell you a story, like a few years ago, maybe three, four years ago, I did ministry in Germany in the church where my relatives were and, you know, um, where my grandparents and parents come from. And so they're a good evangelical church, um, born again. They they believe the Bible and everything, but all the Holy Spirit stuff was new to them. So, you know, infilling of the Holy Spirit and teaching. And so, you know, the third year I was there, I was teaching again, and for the first time, I was inviting them forward, and I laid hands on them and prayed for them. And so in this that particular night, and that doesn't happen all the time when I pray, but that particular night, everyone that I prayed for got slain in the spirit. Like whether they were ready for it, whether they were believing it, it just it, it didn't matter. And, you know, like I'm I'm saying, God, was that really necessary? Because, you know, it always causes a bit of offense when people fall. You know, where is that in the Bible and and all of that? But I, I think I know why he did it. Uh, because everyone can come and be a talking head and talk stuff. Like I can talk about the Holy Spirit till the cows come home. But un- until God comes and confirms and backs up what you preach, like, you know, can you imagine that like something visible was happening? They were experiencing something that was pointing and confirming the message. They were listening with different ears. There, there was something breaking open. While, you know, what you can preach the wildest things, um, even in conservative churches, the wildest things, as long as nothing happens. See, as no long, no, no one is touched. The spirit is not doing anything. But as soon as we, as, as soon as you have a demonstration of power, that's a challenge to the status quo. I remember that particular night there was a teenager, you know, like he was, I think his mum pushed him forward. Like he didn't listen to the message at all. He wasn't ready for prayer ministry. I just prayed for him and he got hit by the power of God and fell to the floor. That wasn't a spiritual moment for him. He he didn't know what happened to him. Like he didn't minister, he didn't create faith or heal or anything. It just God was waving his hand and say, I'm here. You better listen. That's how I take it. So yeah, the faith is not not in the miracle, but it can point to the message of the Bible, and that's what we're preaching and committed to. This this is why I have these conversations and why I like to have these podcasts. Of I can sit down, talk with you, and let you clarify things and explain exactly what you're saying, so that it's not like, oh well, Edgar said this, so that must mean he believes X, Y, and Z. Where you can actually come along and say, well, n- no, I don't actually hold to X, Y, and Z. It's more of a A, B, C that I actually hold to. And, you know, this is why we have these conversations. So we can sit down, we can talk them out and clarify exactly, you know, where the differences are, what the differences are, what it is exactly you hold to. So when you when you talk about all these things about tongues and the spirit and Lutheran renewal and all this stuff, what exactly is that? Because people can people 
especially when there are so many different kind of movements out there. There are so many different kind of Pentecostal, um, charismatic movements, and they all say different things, and people have you know, loaded terms and preconceived ideas. People can, you know, they, they see you doing something and go, oh, well, that must mean X. And I go, well, actually, how about you talk to him, let him explain it to you, um, ask questions, um, ask clarifications, and and then, you know, I, I think this has been a, a profitable conversation. We've been able to probably more, for the listeners, narrow down exactly what it is and also rule out things like you aren't. Like I said, you guys, you guys aren't Gnostics. You guys aren't enthusiasts. Not Pentecostal in the kind of more new-aged, um, new prophet, new prophets, new apostles, all that. You guys are more... Um, Lutheran continuists. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No. I, if that's a if that's a fair analysis of what you got of of yeah. where you'd put yeah. yourself. Yeah, like if that's I, I collect all labels, you know, confessional, orthodox, <laughs> scriptural, evangelical, charismatic. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity and cool. well to to talk and um, yeah, bless you in your ministry, Jake. Cheers. Well, we've. You know, we've had a good conversation and it's, uh, you know, we've gone over our hour. That's fine as long as it's people interested in the conversation, as long as they're happy to listen for that long, then that's fine. Um, basically, do you have any parting words um, that you'd like to say? Parting words? I, I, I think um, I probably want to bless all listeners and I'm probably, you know, the awareness that in our culture right now, the, our culture becomes ever more hostile to the Christian faith. It, it's actually becoming harder. And I, I, I think that we need one another. Those that belong to Jesus, uh, you know, we belong to one another and we probably need one another, need to encourage and support one another. And so I wish everyone well, all the churches to grow and we make a difference in our nation again. Well, thank you, Edgar, for coming on. And I hope the listeners have enjoyed listening to this episode um i i hope people who were a little bit more um wary about listening to episode and wary about me having an interview with you have you know actually managed to learn something from this talk and and that they've 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 enjoyed listening to it as well and that yeah, that they've, that they've stuck around to the end as well, that they didn't, like, listen to the first five minutes and then switch off. Um, well, thank you, and goodbye, God bless, and you have a good day.